Hello, and you're very welcome to The Contact Book. It's a show like no other, because this is where our guests put their contact books and I guess their trust in my hands. We look back at their life and times with a bit of help from those who know them best as we delve into their contact book to hear their life stories from all sides. It's enlightening and it's heartwarming and it's funny. And oh yes, it is unpredictable. I'm Craig Doyle and this is The Contact Book. So someone asked me the other day, is this just a rugby show? I think it might have been my mother, actually. And I thought about it. I said, no, no, it's not. It's a show with rugby players who've used the sport to achieve incredible things in their lives and tell these incredible stories to us. And today's guest is a a perfect case in point. He is one of the finest players to ever have played the game, certainly in, in the gold shirt of Australia. He won 83 caps over 11 years and just lauded right across the world for for changing the way the game is played in his particular position in the back row. That's the rugby stuff. How about the life stuff? Well, rugby has kind of inspired him and helped him, I guess, to achieve his real passions. He had to leave um, his country of birth, Zimbabwe, as a young man and has become a leading activist on social justice and on the environment. He is and always has been in the thick of those battles, even when I guess the easier option was was not to be. I'm delighted to welcome to the contact book Australia's David Pocock. David, how are you? Hey, Craig. I'm really well, thanks. Thanks for having me on this. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, it's uh, <laughs> it can be a little bit frightening because you don't know what people are going to say about you. This isn't all, you know, we have an idea who we're going to talk to. We don't know what they're going to say about you, David. So, uh, you know, <laughs> if anyone has any grudges, particularly family members, this can be an interesting couple of hours for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure something will come up, but it'll be good to have a chat to some people anyway. I'm wondering, David, what it was like uh, on a day-to-day basis uh, as a young man in Zimbabwe, because it just sounds like the perfect, most romantic upbringing for any child. What was it like there? Yeah, in hindsight, pretty privileged. You know, growing up on a farm, we went to school in town, but because my parents had both been to boarding school from, I think, the age of five or six, they were determined we wouldn't board. So they would. my mum would kind of drive us into town every morning and, yeah, got, got to spend a lot of time in nature, sort of walking around the farm, really got into sort of bird watching, got a bit obsessed with birds. We did a fair bit of hunting too. So there was always so much to do. And I guess having two younger brothers, we really made our own fun playing rugby in the in the backyard or catching sheep or whatever it might have been on that day. And explain to people listening, David, how things changed so dramatically. So there was a lot of white farmers running the land there, big, big, huge farms, um, incomprehensible the sizes of some of them. I don't know how big your parents' one was. But then there was the shift, there was a political shift and there was a, there was a, a repatriation of land. And I mean, you had no say in it. It was just, that was it, done deal. Land taken from you and you had to move on. Is that, is that the way it was for people there? I guess it was it was pretty complex, but basically what happened was that the Mugabe government started to lose popularity. A opposition party was started and the government then kind of used land as a way to get more votes and, and use you know white farmers and also black farmers who didn't support the government as a scapegoat and started to evict people from their farms, sometimes forcibly, and essentially just resettled people on that land. And given the history of colonialism in, in that part of the world, land reform was something that had to happen at some point. And then the government had kind of kept putting it off and ended up going about it in a way that totally destroyed the agriculture industry. You had a huge loss of knowledge. There was very little transfer onto people who had been given farms. Farming is the kind of thing, you know, it's intergenerational knowledge that's passed down and, and, and nurtured. And there was really none of that knowledge transfer happening. So, you know, that then spun the economy out. There was some civil unrest around the country. Things were pretty hairy for most Zimbabweans. Times got tough and, and you know, unfortunately we've kind of seen the effect of that continue over the last the last couple of decades with kind of ongoing rumblings of economic and, and difficulties and social unrest. I think it might be a good time to bring in a family member to get a sense of what it was like in that big move. So uh, your brother Mike, I'm sure he's going to be very, very kind to you. Let's give Mike a call. So how many were you in total? How many, how many brothers and sisters do you have? Two younger brothers. Hi, Mike. It's Craig Doyle here on The Contact Book. I've I've got your older brother, uh, David, on. We're just chatting about life in Zimbabwe. And we said it's time to get the younger brother on. He said you're the wild one. (laughs) We've got to keep an eye on you. (laughs) Hey, Mikey. Uh, I think I'm the tame one. Hey, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, we're just talking about, he was 
describing what seemed to be like a fairly idyllic life in Zimbabwe for you guys as young fellows on, on your parents' farm. And then the shock of, I guess, learning that you had to move. And I'm just thinking how difficult it must have, because your parents, I'm sure, put on a really brave face, but it must have really torn them apart. Can you remember that time? You were a little bit younger. Do you remember it? Yeah, I remember it pretty clearly. It was a it was a pretty great life up until the last couple of years that we lived there. And then just kind of remember it being pretty, feels pretty unsafe and not super enjoyable. And then, yeah, we end up moving over to Australia. So what was it like having having an older brother like David there? This already, I believe, as a young fella, a tackling physical machine. What was he like back then? <laughs> I was the next one along. So I was kind of, I've got, we've got home videos of me and like little jolly jumper thing. And Dave, I was probably only a year old. And I'm almost touching the ceiling every time Dave launches me in the thing. <laughs> so I think you, you grow up pretty tough having Dave as an older brother. But no, it was it was great fun and always someone to play carpet rugby and kick balls in the backyard. And it was a lot of fun. You were basically a tackle bag, were you? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mike, talk to us about uh, David as, as a young fellow when it comes to sport. Did he always have a talent for it? Was he always a little bit different to everyone else? Yeah, like I think remembering back to, I don't know, it was, would have been grade three or four. All the mums complained in the opposition teams and said he's no longer allowed to play against our kids, so we had to go and play upper grade. Just stuff like that. Like it was from a very, very young age. He was always bigger and better and kind of had the drive to be a, a sportsman, which worked out pretty well for him. Something we have talked a bit about, Mike, is when we moved to Australia, I guess we all dealt with everything in Zim in in you know different ways and for me sport was kind of mm. my outlet and I got pretty obsessed about it and uh I think it was on that Australian story you you said that I was a bit of a dick <laughs> to be around <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah I can I yeah looking back now I can definitely see that you know the toll that that had on the family having someone who was just kind of all about me and my sport and probably wasn't thinking about a lot else. Well, I think one of the best examples would be when we went on a small little yacht on the Great Barrier Reef. Dave, it would have been grade 10 or would have been 15, 16. He refused to come unless we took a bench press and a set of dumbbells and a curl bar. <laughs> so like, we were <laughs> we were lugging this bench press and like 100 kilos of weights down the public jetty and everyone just looking at us going, what are you doing? Like we're going snorkeling for a week and here we are with the bench press and a... <laughs> so, oh man yeah like that's that's great <laughs> i hope you're embarrassed dave i hope you're embarrassed <laughs> oh man i'm so sorry mike <laughs> what was it like to see him not just represent australia but captain australia mike for the first time you must have been so proud yeah it's been quite a journey i think the family going through and especially because he's kind of I don't know, just such a normal guy off the field. Like a lot of my friends and kind of people and they go, oh, he must be like this superstar that all he ever does is talk about rugby and do rugby. And I kind of say, well, I don't think I've talked about rugby much at all when we're around him. It's always very much that's kind of his job and he goes and does his job and he's very good at his job and then comes away and he's just a, a normal brother, which is I think one of the highlights of, of being around the last kind of 10, 15 years. What's it like having a brother with a rig like that when you're on holidays? I mean, you know, it's, I would never, I wouldn't own shirts. It's pretty annoying. Like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty annoying. <laughs> Certainly get a lot of looks. <laughs> you can always be pretty happy that you know that no one's looking at you, so you don't really have to worry too much. <laughs> uh, Mike, it's so good. It's so good talking to you. Thanks for joining us and thanks for giving us a little insight no into what, what life was like back then. Good talking to you. Take care of yourself. All good. Thanks, Thanks for that. Love you lots. Bye. See you there. Bye. He was, he was good. I mean, my brother would tear me apart if I put him on. I mean, <laughs> did you pay yeah, him I'm, off? I'm, I'm sending him a case of beers. <laughs> it, it's interesting, you know, even when Mike talks about it as well, there, there seems to be very little resentment about what happened in Zimbabwe. I mean, you've got this perfect life. There's the land reform. You have to leave. You've got to go to a new country. You don't seem kind of angry about it. In fact, you seem quite quite sad about it and you want to help 
people in Zimbabwe after what's happened. It's probably a rare trait, I'd have to say, David. I think a lot of people would have a lot of animosity. You know, looking back, it's easy to get nostalgic and then kind of talk about how great it was. But, you know, the realities of farming, often pretty stressful. You know, it's, it's hard work. Finances were often pretty tough. So I guess as kids, you know, we, we had it great. Like we got to grow up on a farm. For my parents, things were very stressful. Then you add all the political stuff. And yeah, it was, I think it was a, it was a pretty difficult thing to do. In terms of being bitter about it, I, I guess one of the things, you know, I've thought about and we've, we've talked about as a family is that it's, it's very easy to kind of come away thinking that you're the victim. But the reality is in, in, Somewhere like Zimbabwe, every, everyone's a victim in some way. You know, there was colonialism with a, a lot of wrongs done there. And then we, we were victims losing our farm, which we bought after independence. But, you know, it, it really doesn't help anyone to carry that bitterness. And it can certainly eat away at you. I've, you know, I've seen, I've seen family members who have become bitter and, and it, you know, it, it really gnaws away at you and kind of steals a lot of life. So, I think I'm probably grateful for my parents for the way they've sort of tried to deal with it and, 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 and talk about it and sort of try and make some meaning out of it and really make the most of the opportunity that we do have. Like I, I arrived in Australia with, I don't know, such a sense of, I guess, gratitude for the, for the opportunity and also, you know, a little bit of guilt knowing that so many of my classmates, you know, didn't have the opportunity to, to move. So really determined as a, as a teenager to try and make the most of it. We're going to talk a little bit later about how you've used that experience to kind of try and help out over there, which is really admirable. But I want to talk to some because as you said, so many people did have to move at the same time. One of them was a family friend of yours by the name of Simon Goff, who I've heard you talk about before. Simon's a teacher and a rugby coach as well. So I think it's time to, I want to, I want to kind of, I want to know what they spotted in you. Let's give Simon a buzz. I guess Simon was one of the first to kind of, kind of really believe in you that you should take rugby quite seriously, was he? Yeah, Simon played a huge role in my life. He was my grade five teacher and I don't know, it was just such such a sort of high energy, really inclusive person. Like he would he would ensure that the whole group was getting into whatever we were doing as a class. And I don't know, I think he really helped foster a, a sense of enjoyment and, and wanting to be part of a, a team and contribute apart from just going out there to win but also having having fun along the way. So Simon, was a, he was a rugby coach in Zimbabwe, but he moved over to Australia as well, did he? He's in the UK. Oh, he's in the UK? Oh, so he moved yeah. from Zimbabwe to the UK. Oh, yeah, wow. okay. yeah. I'm sure he's, he's probably got some sort of accent. We'll, we'll find out. <laughs> oh, shall we? Fi- Let's find out. Let's give Simon a buzz there. So um, somebody should be giving him a wee call now. There we go. Hello. Simon, how are you? Craig Doyle here on the contact book. I have your, your, old, uh, your old pal, uh, David Pocock, on the line with me. How are you keeping? Yeah, I'm all right. Good. So Simon, I now have to refer yeah. to you as Mr. Goff because you're as you're, you're, you are <laughs> a teacher and former coach. So I, I want to go back to in Zimbabwe before you also had to make the move out of Zimbabwe. And what, what did you spot in David as a player, as a potential international rugby player? What did he have? The thing that was always obvious is David was passionate. He was passionate about rugby. He threw everything into it. He wanted it. You know, he was always carrying a ball around. He, you know, he was always talking about rugby. But then, you know, when he when he was playing, you know, he he took everything on board. If you said this is how you should do a tackle, then you would do it. You know, I've coached rugby for many years, and you know, there's there's kids who who think about doing it but don't. David wasn't one of those. <laughs> you know, he would just do whatever you said. You know, take his legs out, run for that gap. You, you know, that's what he was like the whole time. And I believe he was competitive in absolutely everything he did. Oh, uh, yeah. Not just uh, on the rugby um, field. <laughs> no, he, there, there was things that he did. I remember swimming. <laughs> we, we had a very, he was in a very strong year group for swimming. And um, he had quite a few national swimmers. And he didn't want to be left out of that. So I think he joined the club and, you know, said about trying to get his name amongst the lights and swimming. And he did. <laughs> um, oh, man, I used to I, hate I remember, swimming training. It was the worst. <laughs> Yeah. He was this big chunk of a lad. He had power, but he didn't have a lot of style. He just used to <laughs> put himself in the water. Fair enough. <laughs> and a good baker um, too, I, I believe. Well, yeah, that was the other thing I was going to say. Is I think it was baking and needlework. The, the, we used to have a guru show in the town we lived, and people could enter stuff. And you know, it was mostly moms, <laughs> and you know. But Dave came in the one day, and he had the certificate for having baked the first prize cake. <laughs> 
I don't know whether he made some jam or he did some needlework. He no. might know better. But I think it was just the cake. Was it? Yeah, I do remember that though. I think it was a, like a lemon sponge cake, and I try and claim that whenever I can with um, my partner Emma because she's she's amazing, you know, cook and and baker, and I'm still kind of dining out on a grade five Gueru show <laughs> certificate. <laughs> yeah. It was good fun. It's that kind of passion, though, though, isn't it, Mr. Goff? It's that kind of passion. You know, if you have it in rugby, you have it in every facet of your life. And as David's proven, he has yeah. it in his activism. Yeah. You have it, you know, brave enough to, to be vocalized all his beliefs. It's just in him, isn't it? Yeah. It's infectious. That that was the thing. You know, it was infectious with Dave. It was, it, I mean, I was, an, I was an adult teacher, but it was hard to be around him without being, you know, influenced by how keen he was for everything. So it's been brilliant to see how he's, you know, put that into practice and everything, and and it's got him a long way. That's a it's a good, uh, what would you call it, role model. That's brilliant. Uh, Simon, Simon thanks I was so just, much. I was just saying to to Craig um, before we called up, and kind of wanted to thank you for how big a role you played in not just my rugby, but I I, I remember back to grade five. Simon was my teacher in grade five. Um, with I don't know so many fond memories, like just just the level of like fun that you brought brought to it and. Yeah, I think you, you really kind of showed me what it was to really be part of a team and, and kind of want to contribute to the people around me. I've got so many fond memories um, from there. I just wanted to, yeah, really thank you. I appreciate that. I think I, I, I suppose I thank you guys because you guys were a brilliant year group to start my teaching career with. And it, it was exciting. You know, the whole idea was we had fun. That was my first year of teaching. We did 26 field trips. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know that I don't know that we were ever in the classroom. We had a we had a No, I remember a lot of that, that door. Yeah. Uh, look, Simon, thanks so much for sharing these stories with us. Really lovely. Lovely for David. Yeah, too, yeah. Sure. It's been a pleasure. Uh, take care of yourself. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Simon. It. Yeah, cheers. All the best. Thanks, bye. Bye bye. So I want to talk about you as a schoolboy rugby player and the lure of playing in the gold of Australia was sitting there. You were in the system and there was another young fella sitting alongside you by the name of Kirtley Beale, who every rugby fan in the world knows because Kirtley Beale is such a stunning rugby player. And I think we should give Kirtley a buzz because there's nothing better than a, a teammate, a former teammate at junior level to tell the real truth about you. So let's give Kirtley Beale a buzz. Kirtley oh in man, there. this could go anywhere. <laughs> I know. That's why we wanted him. <laughs> So Curtly's in Paris at the moment, isn't he? Hello. Bonjour, Curtly. Comment ça va? Bonjour, ça va, ça va. <laughs> it's Craig Doyle here, Curtly, on the contact. Well, lovely Craig. to speak to you again. It's been a while. How are you keeping? I've, I have your old pal, uh, David Pocock, yeah. on the phone here, live from Australia. Beautiful. Yeah, it's your job as his old deadly, teammate. The and... deadly Bradley. The deadly Bradley. <laughs> KB, how are you? <laughs> how are you, brother? Good to hear from you. You too. How, how are things going in, in France? Mate, really enjoying it here. They're um, great to uh, play a bit of rugby in a different country and learn a bit of a different culture and really enjoying my time here at the moment. Learning a bit of French? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Like we've got three lessons per week, so we're just trying to nut away. And, Very nice. Yeah, it's kind of slowly grown on me, which is good. Is Simon yeah. Zebo teaching any French there, Kirtley, you know? Surprisingly, he's he's pretty amazing. He's uh, he's actually one of the good foreigners that can speak French. So uh, yeah, definitely get a few tips off him every now and then. <laughs> Although his Irish is very hard to, to understand at times as well. Him and Finn Russell combined with their Scottish and Irish accents can be quite difficult <laughs> to understand at times. <laughs> well, Finn Russell, yeah, at the best of times is impossible to understand. My word. Come here to me. Let's go, let, let's go back to when you guys, because you guys okay. you played rugby for from what the age of sixteen. You first met up. What was it like when you first met? Yeah, six. 16, 17, Dave obviously was this huge behemoth of a lad. I was only a skinny rake back then with the skinny curry legs. And, you know, he was, uh, yeah, one of the, the best talents in the tournament and uh, one of the best players, obviously. And he turned out to be a, a goat in my eyes. So it was actually great to build a really good friendship with Dave on the field always showed his heart and uh you know was always led by example and, and continued that throughout his whole career and i still think he's got a few years in him yet but he's obviously decided to retire but uh, you know i wish him all the best for that kb I, rem I remember the first time we played against each other would have been i think that under 16 tournament and because you had such a big reputation like the refs were just kind of looking looking after you and uh i think it was lungy <laughs> that's a lie like, bush <laughs> hundred percent. You were like a game. Like yeah. no one could touch you. Um, 
but yeah, I was, I was, I was pretty stoked the next year to sort of, you know, link up and, and play Australian schoolboys together. So, um, lots of, yeah, yeah. No, lots actually, of, I, lots no, of I remember that memories. game. I remember that game, Dave. I remember that game. So Lungy said to, I remember I was kicking for touch. And he kind of shot out a line. It was a bent arm penalty or whatnot. And when you quickly tap the ball, you've got to quickly take the kick for touch. And he kind of shot out a line. I'm like, geez, I've got to rush his kick. And all of a sudden, I've kicked it. And then I'm like, he's hit me mid-air, flipped me. I think he got a yellow card or whatnot. But he got got let off that one. (laughs) (laughs) Or something like that. But uh, yeah, I actually quite remember those times. You you boys had QC and Will Genya. You guys had a great team back then. Amazing names. My word. Can you think back? So many brilliant young players came through there. well, I mean, a- anyone we speak to, especially from his even when he was a little kiddie, Kirky say that it was it was David's uh, tackle technique that just w- just oh, kind yeah. of shocked them. There was just an absolute animal in the tackle. Absolutely, you know, I, I think uh, one of the best attributes in his game was uh, is definitely his defence and and his breakdown work. A lot of guys he used to kind of teach guys throughout the week, you know, different kind of ways to kind of get the ball. And in defence, he kind of led by example. Whenever he put on a big shot, he kind of lifted up the team and consistently week in week out. Year by year, he kind of led in that front and uh, really became, you know, one of the greats of the game in, on that front of the game. So, you know, it's actually an honour to be a part of it, to play alongside such a, you know, wonderful player um, and, uh, you know, one of the geniuses of the game. But a pretty good human being as well, Curtly, and, and all the, the social activism and the environmental oh, I don't know activism. About that. Well, that's why I want to hear the bad side of it. I mean, it can't all yeah, be yeah, good, yeah. Kirkley. It can't all be good, no, surely. Like the, that's the thing with Dave. I think uh, he was just he was just so level-headed the whole time. He, he's one of the most humble persons you'll ever meet and always had that respect and, and real interest in a person. And uh, I think over the years, that's why a lot of people gravitated to him. And, you know, I think off the field, you know, he had his own interests as we kind of go into, you know, we mature and we grow up. And I think because he was just so true to who he was as a person and stuck and, and always represented his beliefs. I think people kind of respected him for that. And I think, you know, good on him for doing that. And I think uh, he, he's grown a lot of support. And I think uh, he's, that's why he's one of the most, you know, respected players, you know, on and off the field. You know, a lot of other people in his position in that front would kind of probably change their beliefs or kind of go in a different angle. But with Dave, he's that guy that always stayed true to his character and just stuck with it. And I think that's where he gets a lot of respect and a lot of, uh, lot of love from. Thanks, Brie. That's nice of you to say. Yeah, enjoy it, David, <laughs> because, good, you know, bro. next time next time he sees you, he's going to be ripping you apart again. So enjoy oh, it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> mate, just, just just one thing quickly. I don't think we've, I've ever asked you about this, but I've been kind of had a bit of time to reflect. And one of the things I was thinking about last year was one of the most satisfying wins was that game in Bloemfontein where we beat the Springboks. And it was, you know, the first time in the, hell, the high felt for a long time. Yeah. And you nailed that yeah. kick. Um, yeah. I've never asked you about that. Like, I don't know, what, what's going through your mind when yeah. you're sort of lining that right. up? And you, I, I you know the whole that. team's been putting in yeah. and now uh, you have the chance. I remember beforehand, in about maybe five minutes before, I got a falcon from Quaid. So I bore Miss right. Cass hit me straight to right. Brian Habana. That falcon. Brian Habana's hands. And I think, yeah, the falcon. So that I think they scored off that in the corner. And they, I think that put them maybe two points in front. So it had to come down to my kick to win us the game. And I always had that in the back of my mind to kind of redeem myself. But, mate, I, I was practicing so many times throughout the weeks leading up to that game, a long distance kicking. And you always just got to go back to what you know is just practice your, mm. your techniques. You stay true to your own practice. And, you know, if you put 100% in your, your practice, you're always going to get the result in the game. So I was always trying to focus on that. And that's what I was thinking. And I just backed myself, brother, like you always do. We always back each other. And you, yeah, you, you hopefully, nailed it. hopefully the hard um, work pays off. Yeah. So <laughs> I remember remember yeah. that night we were staying at that hotel that's kind of next to the zoo in Bloemfontein, just sitting around the fire, having a beer. Like it was, yeah, it was, that's right. it was yeah. so satisfying. It was special. Really yeah, night. Dingo's birthday, I think, as well. But yeah, that's we had right. such a great crew, you know, good balance of senior and and younger players coming through so definitely one of the great sides I've been lucky to be a part of that's for sure Yeah, boys I've got to wrap it up hey sorry I'm literally in the room here all the good are going you wild can, here. I can hear the training um, training going on behind you but it is <laughs> thanks so much KB <laughs> great love you brother and uh, keep doing you catch up all soon all the best man yeah. good to speak to you cheerio bye bye we're going to fast forward to Australia and to your international career your unbelievable international career who gave you your first cap was it was it Robbie Dean? Robbie Deans. Yep. Robbie Deans gave your first cap. I think we should call... 2008. Let's call Robbie Deans. So Robbie Deans was... Yeah, right. Australia, you know. 2008, 2013. Let's give him a call. Let's give him a call. Good luck He's getting hold of him. He's in Japan at the moment, right? He's in Japan, yeah. right? He's with the Wild Knights still, right? Yeah. Okay, well, maybe 
Yeah. Oh, I don't even know what time of day it is there. We're all been all around the world, haven't we, today? This has been good. Hello. Hi, Robbie. It's Craig yeah, Doyle here on the there. contact book. Yeah, I'm here. I've got, uh, I've got David, David Pocock with me. How are you? Very good, thank you. Uh, we should explain to everyone where you are at the moment, Robbie. Sure. I'm in Japan. It's seven o'clock at night here. Well, we're just about to start talking, Robbie, about his international career, and you were the one who gave him his big break, his first cap. I mean, he was a young guy. What did you see in him? Why did you feel he was ready for it? He gave himself the break, really. He was clearly ready for it at a very young age, totally equipped. The fixture was against South Africa and Brisbane, and South Africa at that point were the incumbent world champions. They won the Tri-Nations that year. They only dropped one game, which turned out to be this fixture, Poe's debut, and uh, David was a big contributor. In fact, became a bit of a, a nemesis for, for South Africa. I think we won the game about 20 to 6, and they won that Tri-Nations that year without dropping any other games. They beat New Zealand twice in New Zealand, which they hadn't done previously. But Poe just showed what a remarkable capacity he had to stop the game, and he continued to do that to them on many occasions, the quarter in Wellington being the next obvious example. But yeah, it was an outstanding debut. He played, we, we shifted George Smith to number eight, I think, on the day. He was captain at the time, but it was a very potent combination and one that unfortunately we weren't to see a lot more of. The last time was the end of that year in Wales. Eddie, I think that was also Willie run, run on debut. Ah uh, yes, that ga- correct. That game in Brisbane, yep. yeah, yeah, that was that, a, that was a well, lot of fun. The whole young, yeah, the whole young brigade, as you know, Poe that was yeah. introduced that year. Willie Quaid, James O'Connor, Kirtley, Kirtley. So it's an exciting bunch. You were never included in the in the Musketeers. I'm not sure why, <laughs> <laughs> but you can probably explain that. Yeah, I think you should. I think you should, David. I, I grow a terrible moustache, so. Uh... I think that, that ruled me out. Yeah, yeah. That's there was a lot of there was a lot of showbiz. There was a lot of showbiz in that team, Robbie, wasn't there? There was a lot of showbiz in it. It was next generation, you know. At the end of the, the World Cup cycle, it happens a lot these days. Two thousand and seven, a lot of great servants of Australian rugby departed. Sterling Mortlock was still hanging on, I think, at that point. Maybe he missed that tour. Might have been his last year. But the likes of Stephen Larkham, George Gregan, Matthew Burke, there's a, an army of them who, who left. So we had a new generation. And to be fair, they had, you know, it, it was a pretty successful few years, but it had its challenges. But I guess in hindsight, when we look back now, you know, I think we're second in the world for three years running there. Mm. So it was probably, when you look at it now in the cold light of day, that generation uh, did pretty well. Mm. Why was he your captain, Robbie? Interesting you asked that, because this is one of the, for me, the great disappointments with Poe's career. I mean, he achieved a lot. Just recently named in the, the world team of the decade, basically from out of position, which shows the manner and respect he had uh, internationally. But the one box that I was so looking forward to, uh, and I'm sure David was as well, but he was denied just through misfortune, probably through injury. Uh, we got him started in leadership in 2012. Uh, the first game was probably a bit of a hospital pass. <laughs> we played Scotland and Newcastle. Scotland, uh, and yeah. It was really a, an Australian 15 because three out of the five Super Rugby franchises played on Saturday and we played a test match on Tuesday. So it was basically selected from two-fifths of Australia and, and limited preparation. And then the weather rolled in. It was a remarkable day, unprecedented, never seen before or since. And I think you ended up with pneumonia, didn't you, Poe? You needed treatment for pneumonia after that fixture. So it was a tough... Got a bit hypothermic, entry. yeah. Yeah. Well, you actually got hypothermic in the ge- in the game. You got hypothermia. No, af- afterwards, just in the cool down. Yeah, this is in that's Australia, ri- so it's <laughs> whoa, that's ridiculous. But I've never me, heard what, of that. What happened after that really, for me, highlighted the potential and and what I think could have been a significant moment in Australian rugby. Poe went on to captain the against the Welsh Grand Slam team that came down. And we, we beat them three to zip. But Poe was really just getting started as a captain. And I think we got an insight through that series as to his potential. I recall the first test on the bus post the captain's run just went around and, and spoke quietly to each of the, the new blokes in the group just to check on them. The final moment in the second test, he opted for a line-out maul, which drew a penalty, and Mike Harris had to kick the goal at the death. And uh, not many know the story, I think, but Poe went up to him and basically put his arm around him and said, don't worry, mate, we'll still love you if you miss. It just showed, for me, the depth of the man and the potential. But then injuries interrupted. I think he had back-to-back ACLs, and that moment passed and uh, never really came back again. 
was that fair, Pally? He might have done the odd game after that, but yeah, no, that was that was, never... that was pretty much it, Robbie. Yeah, the thing that in, in my mind really sets Robbie aside is he genuinely wants people to become better men, and that seems to be his 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 focus. And I've I've certainly learnt a, a huge amount over the years from you, Robbie, and and yeah, have really enjoyed our our time together. Oh, likewise, mate. It's very kind, but you're very easy. <laughs> You've always you know, had interests beyond the game, and I think that's such an important thing, particularly in this era of mm. professionalism. Ironically, I think Japan are actually ahead of the game to that end. Yeah. The programs here capture an element of the amateur, because half the group still have a day job, and the other half are, are professionals. There's a great earthing mechanism for the professionals to have to work with, with amateurs. Now, you're, you're a great role model for them. You know, A lot of professionals don't cope when it gets difficult, because if they don't have an interest. They just go from playing to the couch. And when the tide starts going out, without something to stimulate their minds and something that gives them an esteem beyond rugby, it can be challenging. Mm. I recall you last year here, the boy, after one tough game, most of the boys, you know, just spent Sunday recovering. You climbed the mountain and took some pictures of the of a rare breed of monkeys here. Uh, <laughs> where mo- most professionals just concentrate on physical recovery the day after you... you had interests, and it really fascinated the local lads here. But it's a great example of, of what's possible and, and the importance of, of a balance in life. No, that's very yeah. Very there were there were so place. many great things to to see around around Ota. So yeah, that was at the Wild Nights. That's Wild Nights with a K, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, why well, don't for both of you and all you've achieved in your in your careers, both of you uh, to finish up there is is really fascinating. It's brilliant because we know so little about Japanese club rugby. What what is life like there? I mean, Robbie's been over there for a lot longer than I have. He, he was kind of alluding to how almost all professional players in Japan have already done some sort of university degree or, or, or training, and then they then they become professional. That's starting to change now with a few guys coming straight out of school. But you know, generally everyone's got a some sort of degree, some sort of interest and, and background, and then you do have this part of the squad that that is still you know that they're training just as much as everyone else but then they've got to you know turn up and go and do a, a day job during the day so um it's certainly a different element and, and i i kind of felt it it embodies so much of what rugby should be you know you train hard you prepare well everyone plays hard but it's it's it doesn't have that sort of i don't know kind of overbearing seriousness of, of super rugby where you feel like you're playing for sheep stations every week and i think that you know that allows yep, allows yeah. players to express themselves more Absolutely. And that, that was great for you to have that opportunity because your game's a lot broader than what people give mm. you credit for on the international scene. You know, you could use the offloads, etc. We saw that side of you here with, with the freedom of expression. But the, the other thing that Ryan Crotty alluded to after we played against his team last year, having played against us, he said, Crotty, it's like playing against the Barbarians. And, and he's right when I thought about it. That element is here. So in your last season, David, you had in your team, you had Sam Whitelock, you had Damien Dialande. And you get to play with people that you've played against at international level. And as you say, you're playing for sheep stations. It's, there's not a lot of love in it and there's not a lot of interaction. And that's mm. one of the risks with professionalism is that you know, playing for the right reasons is gone. And, and uh, yeah. that's where barbarians for me are the ultimate, as so long as you get the balance right. <laughs> and they don't go out drinking uh, the day before the game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> correct. <laughs> and break it, yes. Um, but that's a superb element that is here, and long may that last, because we must always remember what, what the game was designed for, and it is unique rugby, and yeah. of all the codes, it's something that is unique to rugby. Robbie Dean's really wise words from you at the end there, and I'd expect nothing less than that from you. Thank you so much. Uh, you're something of an oracle in rugby. I've always looked up to you personally as well, so it's, it's great to talk to you, and thank you so much for your time. Take care of yourself. All the best, Robbie. No trouble at all. Thanks, Robbie. Thank Cheers, you. Interesting talking to you today, David. You're a softly spoken guy. You're a very passionate, softly spoken guy. You don't seem entirely comfortable talking about the good things you've done. You're, you're quite a humble guy. And, and, and that brings me to kind of activism, which also often requires a very loud, strong voice in it and, and how you've taken to activism. I have a quote here, which I, I thought was interesting, something you said. I'm introverted. Speaking up is a big deal for me. Speaking up has not always been easy. At times, I was pretty down about it afterwards. Speaking up has made me grow up as a person. Still find it difficult to talk publicly, and I have to live with those choices. Explain that to me. 
Well, I think there's a big part of me that would prefer to just fly under the radar and, and you know, not have taken a stand on different things that I think are important. I guess probably my late teens, early 20s, I, I got pretty obsessed <laughs> reading about social change and kind of reading about Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, you know, all of these people that we kind of hold up as, you know, in some way, almost sort of superhuman, and we kind of put them on a pedestal. But the more you read about them, the more you realize just how ordinary and fl- and deeply flawed, like all of us, they were. So I guess, it, it, yeah, it really got me thinking about this idea of moral courage. Like, what is the difference between someone who professes certain things and and would like to see things change and you know other people who we kind of see actually doing things and putting their their money where their mouth is so to speak and so i think that yeah that probably played a big role in wanting to use whatever platform i had to actually talk about things that i thought were really important there was a moment in your career I think it was a super rugby game. And and this, it just encapsulates your attitude to me because it was such a natural, it seemed like such a natural thing for you to do. I don't think you thought it out, but the impact was massive. I mean, it's over in Europe, everyone was talking about, about it because it just, your voice was being used to such a brilliant in such a brilliant way, but it was during a game, and 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 you you basically in the stoppage in the game, you turned around to the ref and you said, "Can you just keep an ear out for the homophobic abuse, please, ref?" And what I liked about that is it obviously upset you so much, you had to say something, and it just came out quite naturally. What I liked about it was afterwards, you didn't really want to be interviewed about it or talk about it because it was just a statement you had to make at the time. It was never about you. It was about a situation that disgusted you. I really looked up to you for that. I thought it was a very brave, strong thing to do. Thanks, Craig. I mean, that one was really a sort of a team thing. There there were a number of players who'd brought it up with the ref. And I think when I asked about it, my audio was maybe just picked up the clearest and was kind of pinned on me. But it would it was something that the Brumbies had been talking about is how do we create a more inclusive environment as a club? Because uh, um, if you look at, you know, statistically, there's definitely gay players playing professional rugby. There certainly aren't a lot of openly gay players in professional rugby. So, you know, there's obviously something that needs to change there for people to feel like they can be who they are and be really more comfortable being themselves around teammates. And, you know, and that's that's not up to players who are gay to kind of be the ones who have to be the champion and kind of take that. It should be on everyone else to actually create an environment where that's not a big deal. So it was really something that had come out of discussions at the club that we've been having as players. And yeah, when it was kind of heard in the game, a number of players brought it up. And, you know, it, it actually turned into a really great teaching moment. I, you know, I think luckily this was kind of before cancel culture be- became a thing. And Jacques Portkita, to his great credit, owned up, I guess, and, and talked about the way that we as a culture have been using um, homophobic slurs, you know, just to put people down, put people in their place. And, you know, I think it was really about education and led to some great conversations. He ended up going and doing a bit of coaching at the the Sydney Convicts, um, who are a, a gay rugby team in, in Sydney. And, you know, I think everyone, everyone learned from it. So, you know, you'd hope that as societies, we can actually use those sorts of moments to have some constructive conversations you know, take ownership and actually move move forward better, kind of come come out of it with a, with a better understanding of each other and, and what it's going to take to make things better for everyone in a, in a community and in a society. I guess similarly with Israel Folau's comments, that start as disgusting as personally I found them and many did, it did start a conversation that allowed us certainly as broadcasters to say, we don't believe it's okay to say this and you've got to make your own mind up, but we're putting that out there that this is wrong. Big, big moments do start conversations that have to be had, don't they? Yeah, they do. I, I mean, I've talked about the Israel stuff before. We obviously disagree personally and publicly about this. And I, I think what he said is very damaging to a lot of young people, particularly young people who are grappling with their sexuality, having grown up in religious homes. Having said that, you know, one of the great things about rugby is that you are in many ways, you know, forced to spend a lot of time with a group of people that you don't necessarily choose to spend time with and you, you get to know them and it, it's very hard to hate someone up close like w- when you actually get to know someone you start to see the humanity in them and and just how much you share with them and I guess you know we've all got that family member who we 
probably strongly disagree with on a number of things and, and can get into some pretty heated discussions about it. But we still recognize that, you know, they're human and, and they you know, want a lot of the same things, the same things we want. So, yeah, it was it was really disappointing. And I think after a lot of the work that Rugby Australia had been doing around really leading in Australia on having an inclusion policy and, and trying to make the whole game as a whole inclusive, it was a it was a big blow. But, you know, I, I think the tide has turned on on this issue in society and, and we're hopefully going to become more and more inclusive. I want to talk to you about your passions for the environment. And this is another story. This was amazing because again, you you hit the front pages right across the world with this one. And it's when you got arrested for chaining yourself to machinery to stop a coal mine in Lear State Forest in New South Wales. Uh, he wanted to prevent the destruction of one of the last remaining um, grassy box woodlands. And and this was big worldwide news. And it was alongside a gentleman by the name of, of Rick Laird, an environmentalist. Um, I, think, I think we should give Rick, a call actually, if you don't mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, cool. That'd be, <laughs> Let's get, have you spoken to him recently? Have you spoken uh, to him recently? Would, would have been late last year, I think. Okay, let's give Rick a call. What's he doing these days, Rick? Hello. Uh, he's still on the farm. Oh, oh. Hi, Rick. It's Craig Doyle here. I'm on the contact book with uh, David Pocock at the, at the moment, and we're just talking oh. about. Um, yeah, we're talking about the, the 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 famous, the infamous incident in New South Wales all those years ago. Hey, Rick. How are you, Dave? How are you going? I'm well. Not too bad, thanks, mate. Rick, tell us the story of yourself and David and uh, just your, your friendship and, and your shared passion for the environment and the trouble it got you both in. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, um, the thing was, um, when I first met Dave was um, when he came up to have a look at this mine and I'd been in this campaign against it for a few years now. What were you trying to prevent, Rick? There was this uh, grassy box woodland and it was about to be developed or what, what, what was about to happen? What were you trying to stop? Well, we were trying to stop a lot of things. There was cultural heritage stuff with the Gomeroy people up there as well. We were very good friends with them. There was also, we had a lot of trouble with the water table since the mine began and we knew this was going to be a problem. No one was sort of willing to do anything that much because we thought it would be yesterday's news. And um, I took the opportunity when Dave came along and I thought, this is probably the perfect chance to get some get some airplay Sydney and places like that. So what made you get involved, David? Yeah, it's just madness to be building coal mines at this point in time in prime agriculture areas and you know in state forests that have critically endangered woodland in them. So kind of went up just wanting to show my support and you know, then met Rick. And when you see the challenges that farmers in Australia are facing just on the day-to-day kind of getting by, Something like this is is screwing farmers, you know, twice. It's it's the impact of living next to a coal mine, which you know I'm sure Rick could go into. You know, visiting, you're just confronted with these massive piles of overburden not far from the from the farm boundary. Noise pollution, dust, you know, all the other stuff, issues of water. But then there's obviously the climate change angle as well. And Australia has been dragging its feet and, and sort of sabotaging global efforts to address this issue. So, and it, yeah, it kind of got to the point where I felt like this was something that I wanted to do. And um, it was a pretty long day on top of that digger. So that's it, Rick. The, the <laughs> chains came out, the locks <laughs> came out. What happened next? We hiked in there about midnight. We sort of got going in there and eventually got to the digger. And this is about three or four o'clock in the morning. And anyway, we ended up pouncing on a bloke that was supposed to be looking after it. And he quickly moved to the side when he saw us coming at him and um, we ended up up on top roughly tied to a digger we, we didn't have real good equipment but that didn't seem to make much difference to the uh, police or anything like that they probably could have wrestled us off pretty fast but anyway we had a, we had a good time up there actually we had a long time to discuss our lives and it took nearly all day uh, until they got there they had to come from Bathurst which is a long way away to cut us off Anyway, it was a good um, good thing to get off off my chest, actually. When I got back, everybody was shaking my hand, going, geez, someone should have done this a long time ago. You know, it should have come out. It got, it got in the media, but we needed Dave to get us there. You got arrested, though. I mean, you were arrested. You were chucked in the back of police cars, lads. No, oh, man, that was, yeah. <laughs> I just remember it being stinking hot in the in the back of the wagon and it, like, being pretty rough and there's just nowhere to hold on to. Yeah, it was uh, pretty rough, all right, and hot. Yeah, a pretty bizarre experience, and we kind of got processed at around midnight. And um, I jumped in the car, and we sort of drove overnight to Canberra so I could be at training on Monday morning. 
But the mine went ahead and Rick and other farmers are now feeling the, the ongoing effects of trying to farm next to a coal mine. Oh, and how has that played out, Rick? Has it affected your life? Oh, well, we've had a lot of a lot of dust. I've been fumigated by one of the mines, which is not that one. It was one next to it uh, with the nitrous oxides. Uh, we've had a lot of health issues. You, know, you get a bit chesty with all this dust. Oh, well, look, Rick, I'm sorry it's, it, it's still a trouble in your life and uh, keep fighting the good fight. And thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Take care of yourself. Cheers, Rick. Okay, you too. Thanks, Craig. And Cheers. thanks, Dave. I'll, I'll talk to you later, mate. I'm wondering what your, your rugby coach said to you when you arrived a little bit tired and you told him you were arrested, but not for drinking or fighting, which he was probably used to. <laughs> I mean, like, who's this guy? Well, yeah, uh, Stephen Larkin was the, was the coach at the time, and I guess it had, it had already been in the news and, and all the rest. Um, I think I, I turned up and had a few coffees and trained fairly well, so didn't feel like I'd let the team down in that regard. I guess, yeah, one of the hard things in a, in a team sport when you do something like that that's kind of very individual is that your teammates end up having to answer a lot of questions. And I, w- I wasn't really allowed to do much media afterwards. So, you know, every press conference, my teammates are getting asked about this lunatic Pocock and what's he up to and <laughs> is he all there? Um, so, yeah, I, I felt bad about that. But, yeah, it, it certainly felt like something that, you know, I'd been – signing all the petitions and going to all the the marches and rallies and and, and all the rest and Australia really is shirking our responsibility when it comes to facing climate change and and starting to act in a more meaningful way. Have you thought about going into politics seriously David? I mean makings of a future Australian prime minister surely. I've thought about it. I mean I think it's I think it's so important. You know, it's a lot of young people maybe rightly so pretty disillusioned with a lot of our leaders at the moment and I really think that needs to change, and I think it will change as more young people get into politics and want to try and you know tell a better story and actually create the future that we all want. But it's you know at the moment it's kind of being co-opted by vested interests, and and yeah, we certainly need need some changes. But definitely, it's definitely not on the horizon for me. There's plenty of other things that I sort of finding interesting and and have have been working on, and and really feel like I'd like to kind of get out there and get some uh you know real world experience you know which i think is a is a prerequisite for for a politician you've had more real world experience than a lot of politicians i know if i was in a position to vote for you or second your uh, nomination i certainly would i think you'd be perfect for the job certainly in some level of higher echelons of politics Thanks, Craig. We'll have to try and get you a, an Australian citizenship. But I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking I'm also, at it, the rain and I'm snow also, here. I take it tomorrow, I tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to finish up with where it all began. I want to go back to Zimbabwe because we spoke about it earlier that your passion and your love of the country remains clearly and you want to help out there. You did find the, uh, you had the 1820 Vision Charity and that's been taken over a bigger charity now. But you are involved with the HEFO, the Health Education Food Organization. It's a it's a non-government organization in Zimbabwe, and you're doing great work with them at the moment. Um, I want to I want to call up someone from the charity, if you don't mind, Anane Nkube. Tell us about Anane Nkube. Anane Nkube is you the say it far better than I do. <laughs> founder of HIFO, who we we partnered with HIFO from oh, 2009 to 2000, and, oh, I don't know, 15. 16 and then sort of handed over our contribution to another charity here a bigger charity here in australia but just an amazing man who i've learned so much from and yeah he's he's been really inspirational to me why don't we give him a call let's give him a call let's give <laughs> okay. yeah let's give him a call there um well that's an that's a phone ring we haven't heard yet today <laughs> we've been yeah, all around the world Zimbabwe. Hello. Hi, how are you? It's Craig Doyle here on the contact book. I have uh, David Pocock with me at the moment. We just want to give you a quick call and talk about all the great work you guys are doing at the moment. How are you? We're all right. Thank you so much. Welcome. How are you? Ah, the big bro. How are you? (laughs) I'm well, thanks. You've got patience there with you, do you? 
How are you? I'm f- I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Patience, tell me about the tell me about the important work that you're doing there and that David's supporting. What are you doing? Many many things, Craig. We've seen our work grow uh, from one point to the other, with in leaps and bounds. From where we started with uh, Dave Coco in 2010, I will highlight the mother's shelters that Dave assisted us to put up or to renovate in Kai. It was at a time when all infrastructure in the country as a whole was down after the war. And um, you find a situation whereby women, when they are pregnant, it is vital that they are close to uh, health facilities for monitoring purposes and all. But uh, because these were down, it was impossible for them to be that close to those facilities. And so the mortality rate was quite high as a result of not having proper medical attention. So when they came, we were able to renovate two uh, mother's shelters at the two local clinics. And um, we were able to furnish them to a very high standard that is suitable for giving birth. It's just one example, Craig. Mm. It's brilliant work, patients. It really is. Um, Do you know, if you don't mind, I just wouldn't mind finishing up with... Ananya, just maybe tell us about the importance of having David involved in the charity and, and what he brings to it, because um, we've seen what he's done with his work in, in, uh, in Australia, and he seems to be having the same impact over there. I think he played a very, very, very vital role. And as I'm talking just as an example, in all these uh, hard way that we're involved in, or we are involved in, talk about nutritious gardens, water, proper livestock, but there is a hard part of it where we're talking about trainings. So I would say the most other important thing is to just to reset their minds and say, okay, this is where you are going. Something that could align now with the vision of A4 and also tapping from whatever they would have wanted to to do for them to move forward. As as they as they say, Nanya, you know, g- give a person a fish, they eat for a day, teach them how to fish, and they eat for a lifetime. Great work you're doing there at Hefo. Thank you so much to yourself and patients for joining us. Uh, really good talking to you. Take care of yourselves. Good luck with everything in the future. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. See you soon. Sorry, David. We could have spent the whole the whole the whole time talking to the two of them. I mean, it's incredible <laughs> work. They're so passionate. What lovely people. It's just a lovely way for us to finish. I I, I think with you because we we've spoken a bit about rugby, but not a huge amount. I mean, your impact on the world has been kind of quite broad and far-reaching. So congratulations on that. It's been, it's been really nice talking to you. Have you enjoyed the experience? I really have. Uh, I, I mean, one of, the, one of the funnier rugby-related experiences I've had was actually with, with Anania. We were out at Nkai and we were visiting the local prison. They, they were doing some work with um, prisoners around like you know, having gardens and trying to improve their nutrition. And the guy who ran the, the prison out in like the middle of Zimbabwe, he had actually watched the 2011 World Cup somehow and was giving me crap for, for Australia not winning it. Um, kind of saying like, how could, how could you have lost? Like what was going on? <laughs> Um, yeah, oh, it was great. it was it was really cool. Thank you so much for your time. We've chatted a lot longer than I thought thought we would, but it's been a, it's been really interesting, David. And keep up the good work. It's it's brilliant stuff. Thank you so much. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me. That was that was a lot of fun. Well, there you go. Is it a rugby podcast? It's kind of a rugby podcast. It's a people podcast and the effect that some of these players have had on the world and lived these really interesting lives. David Pocock, certainly a really good example of that. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please do check out our other amazing episodes. Brian O'Driscoll and Will Carley, Brian Abana, Maggie Alfonsi, Sean Fitzpatrick, Kenny Logan, to name but a few. These are the biggest names in world rugby and they have handed over their contacts and their phones to me. So we get to have these great chats. So please do subscribe share the program to all your friends all your colleagues Uh, review give us a five star that would be nice Uh, just spread the word many many more to come Um, this show was produced by Keith Doyle it was a system produced by Brian O'Driscoll sound editing has been by Mark Sharman the contact book is a three rock production for Audi I'm Craig Doyle thank you for your company and bye bye